0: All right, well, welcome to our Bible study. Welcome back. It's been a couple of weeks. Had our business meeting last Wednesday. Went really well, by the way. And going to get some new carpet, new flooring. Well, I don't know if it'll be carpet. We haven't decided yet, but it will be something, something new in the sanctuary. Looking forward to that, the the rolling hills of our carpet now. Just uh, my biggest concern, someone's going to trip on it. But got a lot done last business meeting. Some new members joined. And uh, let's move on now to Matthew chapter 22. That's where we left off. We had talked about the parable of the wedding feast, the marriage of the king's son. Let's pick up now in verse 15. Then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true and teachest the way of God in truth. Except, is that what the Pharisees really believed? No, it's not. I, you, you can't be more opposite here than what they actually had been claiming for the last couple of years. They called Jesus the son of the devil. They said he was blasphemous. They said he was teaching lies. And, and here they're sending—did you notice, by the way, the Pharisees themselves didn't go. They sent off their disciples, the unlearned, the untrained. Maybe they were thinking that uh, Christ would play softball with them if it wasn't the Pharisees themselves. So these disciples go in place of their pharisaical mentors, and i got to hand it to these guys. At least they start off strong. They start off with a compliment. Now, it's a lie. They don't actually believe what they're saying, but they understand the human condition. Unfortunately for them, Jesus is more than human, so it doesn't work on Jesus, right? They start off with a compliment, and what a compliment. I mean, for a spiritual leader, they're basically saying, everything you say is of God. We, we believe that you are a man of God, and the truth you speak is uh, something we should all follow. It teaches the ways of God. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of man. Now, I don't know if that's an underhanded slight, but it, it, I think it's intended outrightly as a compliment. You know, you are such a man of God that you don't have the fear of man in you. I think that's The the blatant statement, I can't tell you if there was something else going on behind the scenes not having been there, but verse 17, tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? Now, look at verse 15. What was the goal of the Pharisees? To entrap Jesus. This is not the first time, nor will it be the last time that they're going to try to entrap Jesus. There's going to be a couple of questions asked in a row of various people uh, trying to get Jesus to be tripped up in what he is stating. And so these young disciples must have discussed, I imagine they didn't just come into this cold turkey. They, there had to be been a conversation. So what question will we ask? Maybe they talked to the Pharisees, maybe maybe they didn't. And they must have thought, this is the best one we got. Uh, how can we go wrong with this? If Jesus says, pay your taxes The traditional Jews will be upset because, well, the Romans aren't our true government. They forced themselves on us. If Jesus says, don't pay your taxes, now we got him on rebellion. We could talk to some of the Roman guards. Hey, this guy's trying to start um, some type of revolution because he's telling us not to pay our taxes. So they were pretty sure of themselves. Just like the Pharisees were sure of of some of the other comments they had made, including the woman caught in adultery. You know, what should we do with this woman? You know, and either way, they thought that Jesus would have a response that would cause someone to get upset. Unfortunately for them, they haven't learned, and they just keep embarrassing themselves. And every time you try to have a truth fight with God, you are just going to embarrass yourself. Now, you may not know you're embarrassing yourself because you're so foolish you don't see what's going on. But those with eyes and those willing to see will only see your embarrassment, even though you don't know it. You can't and you won't win a truth fight with God. Verse 18, but Jesus perceived their wickedness. What a strong word. If the Pharisees thought Jesus was going to play softball, then they did not understand Jesus (laughs) at all. Even in inspiration of Scripture, Jesus calls these disciples out for what they are foolish, wicked, naive, young. But I mean, wicked of all the things he could have said, wicked. That's pretty extreme. I do believe, by the way, these disciples would have been young. I believe they would have been naive. I believe, obviously, they're foolish. But it was their pride that chose them, that, that, that uh, drew them to choose the Pharisees as leaders rather than the Messiah. I mean, they literally have the choice to choose the Messiah as a spiritual leader, and they go with the Pharisees. What, what would draw them to that other than their own pride? I have noticed that prideful leaders almost always draw two kinds of people, prideful followers or broken followers. <laughs> when I say broken, I mean people that really just don't know how to think for themselves, don't want to think for themselves. They've been traumatized and abused so much that, that they, they want someone to basically take care of them and show them the right path. Or it's just prideful people following prideful people. I don't generally find sincerely humble people willing to follow outrightly prideful people. I'm not saying it's not possible. I'm not saying it never happens. In my experience, it is not often the case. So if the Pharisees are prideful, I think we can be pretty confident. So are their disciples. And whether that is the wickedness Jesus is referring to or not, we don't know. But he does call them wicked. And he says, why tempt me, ye hypocrites? Now, what did he call the Pharisees? Their mentors. Hypocrites. What is he calling them? Hypocrites. Do you remember the statement Jesus said in another passage of Scripture to the Pharisees? When you make a disciple, you make them twice the followers of the devil. (laughs) Right? So he's not taking it easy on the disciples. They chose their path, and they chose poorly. I find a lot of young men and women, not just in church, outside of church, not just spiritual leaders, Christians in general, they get themselves in a lot of trouble. I think that many of them truly do desire to know and follow truth. They've just chosen the wrong leader. They've chosen a leader based off of the advice of another bad leader, They chose a leader off of the lack of information they have gained up to this point, the lack of experience. And in their lack of experience but full of pride, they thought, I know what kind of leader I should follow. They didn't get advice. They didn't do their homework. They didn't, you know, search around to see what are the effects other people have have had under this leader. This leader looks like the kind of leader they're looking for. They act like it. They talk like it. So they followed them, and inevitably there is pain and suffering under that leadership. Well, they go from that leader to one like that leader, thinking it will be different, and it's just more of the same, sometimes worse, more pain and suffering. You know, often in a Christian's life, I find a lot of Christians don't really figure it out until they're like in their late 20s, 30s, sometimes even later. By then, they've been through so much pain and suffering, some of them don't even care anymore. They just walk away from church altogether. They're done. They're done with the pain that poor leadership has placed on them, and I don't know if they, if they believe there's even good leadership out there. I think some are convinced it just doesn't exist The problem is not the leadership. The problem is their choice of leadership. There is good and bad choices of friends, of leaders, of jobs, of relationships, no matter where you find yourself. State Christian Academy is one of them. There are students at our school who are still figuring out what is right and wrong and who they are, their own identity in Christ, and, and maybe they're not the best people to be following. And there are students who have that figured out a little better. And when a student comes to our school, they have a choice of which kind of person they want to attach themselves to. The one who's still figuring out life or the one who's heading towards Christ. When you go to a new community, it's time to figure out who do you want to attach yourself to. What kind of leader do you want to be with? These guys chose the wrong one. They're hypocrites. He says in verse 20, Whose is this image and superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God. When they had heard these these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. All right, now that might be, verse 22, the most profound verse of this entire text. I'll tell you why I think so. Their eyes were opened to the wisdom of Christ. They marveled at his wisdom. They walked away thinking, wow. But they still walked away. They still went back to poor leadership after having a first-hand experience at the real deal. How prideful, how dumb, how naive, how foolish, how wicked are these men to see a glimpse of the truth and still walk away from it. That blows my mind. Have we ever done the same where God gives us a glimpse of his glory? A glimpse of truth, we see it clearly, but we still walk away from it? Have we had those opportunities in our past to run to God when he reveals himself clearly, but we run from God after that revelation? Let's move on. Verse 23, the same day came unto him the Sadducees. So you know the Pharisees and the Sadducees are not the same. I think that's been mentioned multiple times in this Bible study from the pulpit. Uh, The Sadducees were religious leaders, but they were more interested in politics, uh, rubbing shoulders with important elite members of the community. They were the religious politically correct individuals. Whereas the Pharisees, you might say, were the leaders of the people. They were the, the down and dirty. They were in the, in the community. They, they knew people's names. They, they, they knew the common man. Whereas the Sadducees knew the political leaders, both Roman and otherwise. Now, when you rub shoulders with the elite, there comes an expectation from the elite that you don't embarrass the elite. Now, truth is embarrassing to those who don't follow it. And if you have made it to the top through immoral means, then you most definitely are not a lover of truth. If you've made it to the top through pride and destruction of others, then you don't, you're not really a fan of the truth. If you've made it to the top thinking you pulled yourself up by your, by your own bootstraps, you're not really a believer of God. To rub shoulders with those kinds of people, they expect that you would not embarrass them publicly or privately by stating something opposite to their own beliefs. So to be at that level, either you've got to be with some very unique individuals who see God and truth for the way it is and the way he is, and God has brought them to that level, or they've gotten to that level outside of God and have no interest in really knowing the truth about God. And if you know anything about first century Roman rule, God was not a big part of the elite. So these Sadducees had to deny some very basic doctrines in order to be at the place that they were. And one of them was the doctrine of the resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe that there was anything after you're dead. When you're dead, that was it. It was just nothingness. And I don't know why that would be a requirement for them to rub shoulders with the elite or in what way that was. But we do know that was the major difference between Sadducees and Pharisees aside from who they associated with. So now now the Sadducees want to have a go at it. There is no resurrection, verse 23. They asked him, saying, Master, Moses said if a man die having no children, his brothers shall marry his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there was with us seven brethren. The first, when he had married a wife, deceased, having no issue, left his wife unto his brother. Second, third, all the way to the seventh. Basically, this woman married seven brothers. All in order. Kind of an odd rule, kind of an odd lie. I think it would be really weird for us today to have a law where a woman is marrying the brothers of her dead husband. But back then, a cultural thing, it was not only accepted, it was expected. So let's step outside our own culture and just understand that was acceptable at the time, this woman having married seven brothers in a row. The Sadducees now ask the question, verse 28, after she dies, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. At some point, they were all her husband. Whose wife will she be? Now, they don't believe in the resurrection, so they're asking a question about a truth that they don't believe exists. But, you know, again, they're trying to trip up Jesus. It's not about debating the resurrection. It's about getting Jesus to state something that makes him look dumb. So Jesus, verse 29, says, "...ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven." But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. They didn't ask that question about the resurrection, did they? They asked the question about whose wife is she? He answers that and gives them a bonus answer. A bonus answer they didn't want to hear, but Christ was going to take the opportunity to say, look, you're trying to trip me up. Asking me a question about the resurrection, which you do not believe, I'll answer that, and I'll tell you that you are a fool for not believing in the resurrection. The Sadducees would have claimed to have been knowledgeable of the word of God and followers of truth. And Christ says, I'm going to take the Bible that you claim to follow and show you from your own text that you do not know it as well as you do, and you don't follow it. God is not a God of the dead, but of the living. When the multitude heard this, they were again, what? Astonished. Same ideas that marveled, right, at his doctrine. This time, verse 34, the Pharisees themselves saw that he put the Sadducees to silence. They were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer. Now, who did the Pharisees send at the beginning of tonight's Bible study? Their disciples. Didn't work out so well for them. Then the Pharisees stood by and watched as the Sadducees had their go at it. Didn't work out so well. How prideful are these Pharisees to think that they're going to fare any better after the first previous attempts, not even including today, but beyond. The Pharisees have already attempted this before, and not once have they succeeded, and yet they're going to try again. Nothing else. Got to give it to them for their persistence. Unfortunately, they were persistent, but they were also fools. Persistence itself is not a virtue. When you keep doing persistently the wrong thing, when you are consistent in your foolishness, we shouldn't praise, well, at least they're consistent. You know what? In this case, it's better if they weren't, because they're being foolish. They go back to Christ. This particular guy, he's a lawyer. Now, that, that actually means what it says. So this, this guy was a Pharisee who would have... A, have um, been used in a court of law to defend a family, an individual, when it came to a judgment that the judge had to make, a judgment call. This, this lawyer would have defended or been on the other side uh, dealing with the Old Testament as it applied to various life scenarios. All right, verse 37. Jesus says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second, like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I'd like you to turn to the book of Mark now. We're going to see this same text. Let's go to um, yeah, Mark chapter twelve. The reason we're going to turn there is because this particular gospel gives us some detail that I think is worth pointing out. All right, Mark chapter 12, and we're going to look at verse 32. All right, he just answers. Verse 31, second, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Verse 32, the scribe said unto him, well, master, thou hast said the truth. Now, isn't that funny? As if Christ needs the approval of this scribe. This scribe is so prideful that he thinks it is his position to state that, yes, Christ, you got the answer right this time. That is how prideful this guy is. I mean, pretty prideful to even confront Christ in the first place. But even in his pride, he does state, there is one God, there is none other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, to love his neighbor as himself is more than the whole, all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now that, that's a pretty profoundly insightful statement. That's something Christ has said in the past. He's told the Pharisees, you know what? I'd rather you guys stop uh, making sacrifices and start showing mercy. He said, I I, I want you to take a break from the sacrifices and understand what mercy is. But, you know, basically love, forgiveness. He said that to the Pharisees in the past. This particular Pharisee, this scribe, this lawyer, is saying something back to Christ, not exactly, but very similar. He's saying, you know what? Loving God and loving others is more important than any sacrifice. Now, I don't know that many Pharisees would have agreed with this guy. He's kind of in the middle where now he's got the disciples of Christ not really on his side, but now the Pharisees hearing this probably aren't on his side. Wait, you actually thought that? We never said that. You know, what kind of Pharisee are you? And then look at Christ's response. He says in verse 34, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean that this man's understanding of what love is. Brought him to the point of salvation, which is very important to to get this truth. Just because you love people doesn't mean you're saved. Just because someone is both religious and loving doesn't mean they're saved. But it could mean they're close. What does that mean by close? How close does one have to get before they step over? (laughs) It varies, I'm sure. There is no exact line there. But I will tell you this. This person understood God better than most. His understanding of God, unfortunately, was mostly academic. But his academic understanding of God was an accurate one. And therefore, because he had an accurate view of God, Christ said, you're close. You're close to stepping over that line from it being academic to it being faith, to embracing Christ, me, the Messiah, the Son of Man, as your Savior. You're close. A lot closer than those who believe in a God academically opposed to Scripture, a lot closer, say, than those who believe there is no God at all, then all they do is argue about the fact that God does not exist. This guy is close. Now, close doesn't get you salvation. But I would rather talk to a guy like this myself, even though I think this man has pride. I think it's displayed for us in the way that he comes to Christ and the way that he gives his approval of Christ's statement. I think there's pride there. We all have pride. Even Christians have pride. But this man's pride wasn't so deep that he couldn't see truth. So what does that mean for us? You can't bring someone over the line to salvation. But I do believe we can play a large part in getting them to this point where they understand who God is. They see clearly who God is. And the way God's love and truth are balanced, when we can get them to that point through illustrating in our own lives conversations that we have with them, we can get them close. And you know, however you want to say it, they have a better chance at the next step. They're more likely to take that next step. I think that both of those are true. What happened to this Pharisee, we'll never know. The Bible never gives us an update on this particular guy but I'd like to believe that he did get saved. He was so close. You know who else is close? When I'm reminded, I, I remember the Apostle Paul, the book of Acts, as he was speaking in front of uh, the, the, uh, the, the politician, the, the leader. And uh, the guy, as he's listening to the Apostle Paul, says, You know, I, I almost believe. <laughs> He says, I'm, I'm in. You almost convinced me. I'm not really there, but boy, you are stating things I've never heard before. I see things a little clearer now, but I'm not really ready to take that step. All right, we're in Mark. Let's take a look at verse 35. And Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple, How say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore himself calleth him Lord, and whence is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. What does that mean, common people? It means non-religious people. The religious leaders were only always offended by him. Also marveled, but maybe the marveling and the astonishment caused them to be more offended. We definitely don't see them in mass or even in small pockets publicly putting their approval on Christ's claim of deity. I mean, the most approval we get is is this scribe saying, your statement is true. That's about as far as we get with their approval of Christ before his death, burial, and resurrection. The religious individuals, who should have been the ones who recognized first who Christ was, seem just to be offended and upset with Christ. It is the non-religious. It's what the Bible calls the common people, who when are marveled by Christ, are drawn closer to him. Their presupposition, their traditions, their strong philo- philosophical religious beliefs don't hinder them from seeing Christ for who he is. They see a little clearer. I'm not saying that religion is a bad thing. Obviously, uh, the Bible talks about religion. It says the purest form of religion is to care for those among us who, who are in the most danger of not being able to help themselves, the, the widows and the orphans. So God doesn't trash or bash or belittle religion. He defines for us what it is. Religion is the act of love that helps the helpless. Religion is not the act of love that helps yourself. Religion is not the act of love that helps those who need, don't need help. It is the act of love that helps those who, who can't get help. That's how religion should be played out in our lives. Now, religion can't save you. Helping the helpless doesn't get you to heaven. But once you are saved, that's what it should look like. And yet, those who were the most religious, those who claimed to offer the most help to the helpless, when truth was offered, mostly couldn't see it. It was the common man, the sick, the outcasts, When truth was offered, they embraced it. Not all, obviously, many did not, but it's the common people we see right here, heard him gladly. Now, what is the statement here? The Pharisees weren't talking about Christ because they didn't believe he was the son of David. They didn't believe he was the Messiah. The son of David is a title for the Messiah, for the one they expected to come and rescue them from their, uh, I, I think they first and foremost thought, from the Romans, They did understand the Messiah would be a spiritual Messiah, a spiritual Savior. They understood that. But they also understood him to be a physical because the Old Testament does promise he would be their king. So they were looking for both at the same time. They didn't realize it would be both at two different times. The first time, first and foremost, he'd be the spiritual Savior. He'd come back as the physical Savior at another time. So they were confused about Christ because he wasn't doing both, among other things. Now, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, claimed, as the Bible states, that Jesus, one of his titles, is Son of David. That's not the issue. The Bible gives him the title, the Son of David. The issue is how they interpreted that title. What was the interpretation? The interpretation was because he was the Son of David, the Messiah was essentially under David. That's what the interpretation resulted in. Christ is not debating the title. God himself was the one who gave it to the Messiah, to Jesus, his son. Christ is debating the use of the title. He's saying, so you claim that the Messiah is the son of David, therefore under David, and that in a sense David, you know, was a pretty important guy in Jewish history and was was maybe as important or more important than the Messiah because the Messiah is his son. But also it seems that I think the Pharisees are also claiming that the Messiah is a, a... not, not an eternal individual, that he was a, in a form a created being, that he would be a created being, and therefore he came after David. Now, Jesus is saying two things. First of all, the Messiah, although his title is Son of David, doesn't mean he's less than David. Because when you look at Scripture, how does David refer to the Messiah as the Lord? And he says, to my Lord God, you know, to the Lord, Messiah. Speaking to both of them, about both of them, he's saying, the Lord said to my Lord, the Lord God said to my Lord, the Messiah, sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David understood the position of the Messiah, and David understood he fell far short of the Messiah's glory, just like we do. Romans chapter 3, fall short of the glory of God. The Pharisees, I don't think, truly understood that. And then Jesus is also stating, if the Messiah is the son of David and therefore not an eternal being and came after David, then how is it that David is speaking about the Messiah as he already exists back when David was alive? Jesus is dealing with both the eternality of himself as well as the deity and authority of himself. Once again, Jesus is saying, I'm more than a man. I am the son of David and I am the Lord. Not just a created being who came from the lineage of David. And the common people heard him gladly. Now, verse uh, 38. He said unto them in his doctrine Beware of the scribes, which love to go in long clothing, and love salutations in the marketplaces, and the chief seats in the synagogues, the uppermost rooms at the feasts, which devour widows' houses. And for a pretense, make long prayers, there shall receive, these shall receive greater damnation. You say, Pastor Russ, you talked earlier about leaders and following the wrong leaders, becoming the wrong leader, attaching yourself to the wrong leader. Like, How does that look and how would a young person determine the right kind of leader? Well, there are so many passages and scripts that deal with leadership and what leadership ought to look like. If you just know your Bible well, that will protect you from poor leaders. Unfortunately, a lot of Christians don't know their Bibles well. They just know what they've been told by poor leaders. And, of course, those poor leaders are going to say, look for these things, which are the qualities of a poor leader. And they're going to filter what they think they should be looking, through, uh, looking for through poor leadership and poor advice. If you just go straight to the Bible and read the Old and New Testament on leadership, that sets you up for success on what to look for and who to be. But Christ gives you some red flags here. There's some warning signs in this passage. He says, first of all, in verse 38, they love to go in long clothing. What does that mean? They love to look good. I'm going to keep going. Before I start talking, they love salutations. They love for people to recognize them in public places. They love to be recognized. They love chief seats, uppermost rooms, positions of honor. But what do they do? Religion, true religion, is to care for the widows and the orphans. What are these leaders doing? Devouring them. Devouring their houses. What does that mean? They don't help the widows, they destroy them. They don't help the orphans, they, they hinder them. What looks like help, if you were to actually if you were actually to evaluate their ministries, their spiritual advice and help isn't helping people. And those who are hurting most are just hurt more by these leaders. They're adding to the damage. Adding to the pain. Adding to the destruction. They're not taking it. They're bad leaders. They're naive. They're foolish. They don't know what they're doing. They're hypocrites. Maybe they're hurt, and so they're hurting in return. Either way, these aren't leaders you should be following. But we're still not done. They pray a long time. (laughs) do you think, did you think before tonight that a red flag was long prayers? Would you have considered that? That maybe, just maybe, I should evaluate this spiritual leader because they pray for 20 minutes every time they have an opportunity. Probably not. Now, you might be falling asleep during the prayer. But you sure would be in awe of them that they could do that that long. You might be bored out of your mind because they pray 10 minutes after preaching 50 minutes, but you'd walk away saying, wow, what a man of God. We've been trained to think that way. But where in the Bible does it state long prayers comes from good leaders? Not ever once is a good leader defined by long prayers. But on more than one occasion we are warned of leaders through these types of prayers, long prayers, prideful prayers, prayers that are repetitive in nature, like the heathen prayed, where God's name is mentioned over and over and over again, but there's no substance, no sustenance to the prayer. And yet how many deacons, trustees, and pastors have I just defined? I have learned for some time now that you really won't have the opportunity to evaluate the quality of a leader through their prayer life because their true power in prayer would be private, not public. So if you're going to determine a strong leader, it should not be through their prayer life. And in fact, if a strong leader is trying to prove it through their prayer life, that itself to me is a red flag. I'm greatly concerned when I sense that happening. I'm not saying... Keep your prayers five seconds, ten seconds short. But for a pretense, they make long prayers. That doesn't mean every time someone prays long, it is a problem. But there is a red flag that they could be doing it for the wrong reason. Christ is stating so here. As he has stated in other times about the prayer life, the public prayer life of the Pharisees. I have learned that depth doesn't require length. You can pray very accurately and powerfully, publicly, in a short time. How do I know that? By the greatest example Scripture offers, Christ himself. Read the few prayers that he offers. He only gives us an example of a few. On two occasions, the apostles say, teach us to pray. On two different occasions. And the prayers he gives are within 60 seconds. You could read them slowly and still be done in less than a minute. The other prayers we see, Garden of Gethsemane, on the cross, they're pretty short prayers. That doesn't mean Christ only always prayed short. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying throughout the night. I get that. When the apostles are on the ship, and the wind is tossing them about, and they think they're going to die, and Christ walks on water, he had been praying on the mountain for some time. I'm not saying Christ never prayed long. I'm telling you, when he's praying publicly, when we see his public prayers, they are short. And then the Bible alludes to the fact that his private prayer life is long. But we aren't even given the chance to evaluate his private prayer life because it's private. And when a spiritual leader wants to make a pretense at showing off what should be private, that should bother us. But let's go back to the other things that were stated. They like to look good. How many churches literally make it a requirement that the pastor doesn't dress nice? Surely he's not a man of God. If he's not wearing the nice shoes, the tie, the three-piece suit, if he doesn't have the handkerchief, if he's not clean-shaven or his hair is not a certain way, if he's not appealing to the eye, can he be a man of God? If (laughs) pastors literally state it is the job of the spiritual leader to dress the best because everyone else will go to the point of the leader and then drop a peg or two down. (laughs) So if the spiritual leader is, you know, dressing somewhere down here, then everyone's dressing down there. The spiritual leader drops here, then everyone's dressing way down there. I mean, what are they afraid is going to happen? People coming in bathing suits? I don't know what they're afraid is going to happen at some point. But it is literally stated that the pastor needs to be the best dressed. Now, first of all, again, I don't see that in Scripture. Do you ever see in Scripture where the spiritual leader has to be the best dressed? I do see it when the Pharisees think it about themselves. I don't ever see God claiming that. I don't ever see the Apostle Paul stating that. I see Christ, it seems, dressing in a pretty common way. The Apostle Paul's dress, Peter's dress, isn't described for us. And I feel like it's because it wasn't amazing. (laughs) I think that, um, well, I know. There's nothing wrong with wearing jeans when teaching the Word of God. I'm wearing them tonight. None of you are bothered by that. I don't see you being bothered by that. Why don't I wear them Sunday morning then? I have stated many times that I dress in a manner to not cause distraction. It is not to be the best dressed in this room. I have no belief system that if I dress to a lower level, others will dress below me. I'm not concerned that our church will pretend this is beach day on Worship Sunday. I dress in a way that I believe would not cause distraction. My goal is if I was to ask you what I wore last Sunday, you couldn't tell me. Now, if you can't tell me what I wore last Sunday, I did a good job. I do believe this. If I wore jeans last Sunday, you'd be able to say, yeah, you wore jeans. Which means, good or bad, you were distracted by it. The jeans themselves are not the issue, it's not a moral issue here. But if I am in any way, while preaching the Word of God, causing a distraction, then that's a problem for me because I've caused a problem for you. Well, then, Pastor Russ, why do you wear them on Wednesday? It's a different group, different style. Different setting, and I believe that it's appropriate in this setting. Whereas Sunday, I wouldn't want to cause a distraction, even one that's a non moral issue, an amoral issue. Same thing with our worship team. So we try to tell our worship team people should not be able to remember what you wore. If they can remember how you looked and what you wore, we got a problem. It needs to be all about Christ. These Pharisees want to be known for what they wore how many preachers dress like they're going to some presidential inauguration and they claim it is a sign of spiritual strength, a sign of spiritual blessing or spiritual maturity, that those who are spiritually mature look the best, dress the best. And we have swallowed that lie whole. The Bible never says the spiritually mature dress the best. Never. But we see a lot of Pharisees who are called hypocrites living that philosophy. I'm not saying never look nice. I'm not saying never dress up. What is comfortable for you, what is a style of dress for you that you walk in and you feel this honors God, and I'm doing this because of of uh, my the, the way I want to worship God today, if it's not causing a distraction, then all right, that's the point. But if you're coming into the worship service to be noticed, that's the Pharisees. To be noticed is the Pharisees. To put and point to Christ is this disciple. Let's keep going now. From that point, they love salutations. Not only do they love to be noticed, they love to be acknowledged. They are bothered when people don't say hi to them. They are bothered when people don't acknowledge their accomplishments. I know we've had two men internationally known die over the last week in heaven today. And I think men who truly love God have no doubt about that in my mind. Charles Stanley and um, the singer. Thank you, Ron Hamilton. I didn't grow up, I, I listened to Odyssey, not uh, Passive Pirate. I was not a Passive Pirate guy. But I know of Ron Hamilton. I appreciate the man. I appreciated his work. And two, two men who love God. There is no problem with recognizing and honoring their work. But I've noticed a, a trend, and it's been in Christian circles for some time. I am concerned about the trend of what you might call over honoring. I get celebrating the life and, and the, a life well spent for God. I get that. But can we get to the point where we are now over-honoring the man of God, elevating them above and beyond even maybe what, what they would want if they were still alive? Like they'd be embarrassed, possibly, if they, if they knew how they were treated in their death. I remember watching a video one time. I didn't even know this preacher. I don't, I'm not, I don't remember where. I think it was on Facebook. So someone that I knew that someone that I knew was posting a video and a preacher's casket, I think it was. It must have been being brought out. It was after the funeral, I imagine it was being brought out. And as it was bringing brought out, the preachers in three-piece suits were holding. This must have been some guy. I had no clue who this guy was. This was like when the last year. Three, preachers in three-piece suits holding the casket, right, Paul Bears. And preachers were lining up the aisle. And as he walked by, all the preachers held their Bibles up. And were doing like a salute, I guess, with their Bibles. I had never seen such a thing. I'm not really sure what it means other than it just seemed very odd to me. As I'm watching, thinking, what what are we saying here when we're holding up our Bibles? I, I imagine it's their way of honoring him and his life. Again, I just felt like, is that not too much? The guy loved God, praise the Lord, let it be an inspiration to us. But do we need to treat him like he was Christ himself? Or do we need to treat him like he was an angel that left this earth? The Pharisees wanted everyone to acknowledge them all the time. They definitely would have wanted to send out with the Torah being held up. Like they would have wanted that, the Pharisees. And so for me, anything that resembles anything like that, I just it gives me shivers and not in the good way. I'm not interested in being that kind of church, that kind of pastor, that kind of leader, being in that kind of circle where men or women are treated in such a way. We are servants. What did Christ say about servants? He said when the servant does his job, why would they expect praise? They just do what they're supposed to do. That's how I feel. And... As a follower of Christ, I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do. It is nothing amazing. And when my fellow Christians think it is amazing, it concerns me that someone would think what should be normal is amazing. That concerns me. Let's not normalize the normal being abnormal. Did you catch that? Let's not normalize this idea that what should be normal is amazing. It should just be normal. It's what we're called to do. Serve God. And then, we're done at this. Verse 39. They love positions of honor. I don't remember when I stopped sitting up there. It was more practical than anything else. I sat up there on the stage originally because that's just, I always went to churches where the pastor sat on the stage. That's just how it was. It made sense to me. Um, singing, praying, preaching, and so on. And so, you know, from the seat to the pulpit, that's the quickest point. It's right there. I, it, practically, it makes sense. I get it. And then something happened. I think we were running out of space. I think this is when Pastor Jordan was still here. We didn't really have a lot of space for people to be up there. I thought, oh, no, we're no, we're You know, Jordan's like, where do we put people? I said, no problem, but I'll, let's move my chair and I'll just come down here. It was either at that point or shortly after that point. I forget the exact time. But something with the space on the stage just no longer made sense for me to sit up there. It did not bother me one bit. I thought, well, shortest point here and there, but you know what? I'm happy to sit on the front row as well. It doesn't bother me. I've been now sitting here at least, I don't know, six, seven months, I think, plus, and I am at a point now where I don't think I'll ever go back on the stage, no matter what we do at the stage, no matter what we do at this room. I Now that I've been down here, there is something different about being amongst God's people, worshiping God, Every time I was up here, guys, I couldn't. I had to close my eyes because when I saw you guys, I just get distracted. I'm not saying you did it on purpose, but there's, you know, over, over 100 people I'm looking at. It's too easy to be distracted when I'm up there looking everywhere else. So, for one, it was hard for me to worship. Two, I don't want to be considered that I am putting myself in a place of honor unnecessarily. If it was for practical reasons, fine, but it no longer became practical. Now that I'm down here, I'm not sure that it's the practicality of it is worth being up on stage when we claim it's all about Christ. And yet, I've, as I've grown up, as I was younger, not only did I find pastors sitting on the stage, the men they wanted to honor sat on stage, a particular trustee or a deacon, a visiting preacher sat on stage. And did you ever notice the kind of chairs they sat on? I mean, I don't know if chair is the right word. Thrones. many thrones. Gilded Almost. False gold, but looks good. Dressed really well, want to be acknowledged, sitting in places of honor. Did I just describe the Pharisees or the pastors of the 21st century? I'm not saying that all men who dress sharp wear nice suits, all men who are people, persons, and like to interact, all men who sit on the stage. I'm not saying they're Pharisees. I'm just saying these are not signs that we should be looking for in a spiritual leader. If we see these things, we should be asking ourselves, is there something else we're missing going on? Because these are signs, potentially, of a Pharisee. Could it be a guy's on the stage like me just because he never thought about it? Very much so. Could it be the guy who wears suits because he just likes wearing suits? Sure, that's possible. Could it be the guy is always acknowledged because the guy is just very friendly? Definitely that could happen. So don't assume that right away these three things mean the guy's a Pharisee. But don't assume right away because of these three things he's a man of God. <laughs> if you're going to assume something, I think we'd be safe to assume they're closer to the Pharisees because that's how the Pharisees are described and never once, never once, Does God describe spiritual leaders in that way? I think, unfortunately, men like myself, we are a product of our time. The 21st century, United States of America. And we are not thinking. We are not evaluating. We are not looking deep into why we do what we do. We just do what's always been done. And when you're a product of your time, it is not until after your time that people look back and say, what were you doing? Let us as Christians ask that question while we're still here, rather than requiring our children to ask that question after we're gone. I don't want to be a product of my time. I want to reflect Christ as purely as I can. And I challenge you to do the same.